This episode of Good Morning is brought to you by Grief, a guided journal. Created by Joe Betts, this journal can be used whether your loss was recent or years down the track. It is a safe space to let it all out with no judgment or positive platitudes, which, of course, we absolutely love. Listening to Good Morning, the podcast talking all things grief with honesty and humor. We are your hosts, Sal and Im, and we are coming to your ears today with a very, very special episode. I cannot tell you how excited we are to share this amazing woman with you all. But before we jump in and tell you all about it, Sal, how are you doing? I am doing all right, thanks. Why are we singing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I am doing okay. So are you. Just singing through my grief these days. No. Oh, my God, um, <laughs> far out. Can we not? I'm doing okay. Do you know one thing that actually really surprised me? So it was my birthday last month, and um, I always feel really griefy around, around my birthday because, obviously, you know, I'm thinking a lot about my mum, and it kind of triggered, like, triggered quite a lot for me and I I found like the kind of weeks afterwards um I felt really really griefy um it kind of was like a resurgence like a new a new wave of grief or a new bomb a new grief bomb kind of emerged Um, I think that's normal around these milestones and I think we just have to like give ourselves some grace you know you know you can kind of like we judge ourselves and I think what's going on actually honestly (laughs) after like everything that we have learned for years like the years that we've been doing this we still judge ourselves like I remember back to your birthday like the lead up to your birthday and you were like what's wrong with me why am I feeling this way I'm like Sal (laughs) you've got a massive milestone coming up like but we forget and I think yeah Mm -hmm. we expect ourselves to be at a certain point with our healing and when we're not, we start to judge ourselves. Um, but Definitely. yeah, I think birthday grief is a real thing. All these milestones. And, and I think that's also played into my energy levels. Like, you know, mm. when, you know, when you're feeling like quite griefy or you, you know, you're sort of trying to process your grief, it can be exhausting. Um, so that's, yeah, that's been like, it, it did catch me off guard. It's one of those things, you know, you know, you've got the mm. milestones coming up, you know, it's coming up. And then sometimes still you're like, wait, what? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it might like change as well. Like how you react or respond to it coming up might be different. So then it catches you off guard. You're like, oh, why am I feeling like this? You know, it could be new emotions and things like that. Definitely. That come up for you. How are you? Yeah, I'm going right. On? I mean, talking of new emotions or it's not a new one but like I feel like old mate Angus made a resurgence for me he's come and come back really made a comeback yeah yeah anger for me was like one of the strongest emotions I felt at the start um anger and guilt and yeah rage like pure rage and I hate it like it's so uncomfortable um but I I'm proud of myself because I've been just acknowledging that it's there and working through it and safely like releasing it which is you know something that we talked about in quite um in quite detail with Julia Samuel back in last season I think it was the first episode of season four and yeah learning how to safely release those feelings of anger and not looking at it as necessarily a negative emotion um it has its part to play and so I've yeah been working through that and safely releasing it um through 
exercise been a main thing yeah and yeah just some like journaling again and yeah not suppressing it because suppressing it is the worst thing to do and it's not you know as Megan Devine says it's not a it's not a bad emotion you've got Mm. to get it out and it's really important to express it so good on you for for knowing what you need to do recognizing it and and releasing it like I remember you said that um you know back in the day you had an anger journal has that come back out again has it mate yeah yeah no one will ever read that it's so dark some furious (laughs) scribbling going on over at Im's house rage (laughs) journaling I'm telling you it's a thing (laughs) but good on you though that because that's progress knowing what you need to do and to you know yeah the grief um yeah and I also think like just acknowledging that you know that old thing about grief isn't linear and the five stages of grief aren't linear and um I had come to a good place with the anger and worked through a lot of it and it's come back and that's okay I'm not gonna fight it I'm not gonna judge myself like we've Mm -hmm. just been talking about I'm just gonna accept that that is what it is right now and I'm not gonna be feeling this way forever and if I just keep doing that work it should hopefully ease up soon but yeah watch out <laughs> I'm in a mood <laughs> and who are we talking today to today so to set the scene as some of you might remember we interviewed Dr Bruce Grayson towards the end of last season who is one of the world leading experts on near-death experiences so we wanted to chat to him to get his scientific take on NDEs, which stand for near-death experiences. And this leads us into today's conversation, doesn't it, Sal? It does. So today we are coming in hot with a personal experience of what it is like to have a near-death experience. Um, And it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it, Im? Yeah, I'm really excited for this one, guys, as you can tell. (laughs) Calm down, mate. Um, (laughs) We are talking to an incredible woman called Kimberly Clark Sharp, all about her near-death experience. How many times can we say experience in this episode? (laughs) (laughs) You guys got to do something every time we drop the E word. Um, So Kim is a social worker, author of After the Light, and co-founder and president of IANS, which stands for International Association of Near-Death Studies, which holds in-person support group meetings for near-death experiences. Um, You might have seen her actually in the Netflix documentary that we bang on about all the time called Surviving Death. She was in episode one and she is hosting one of her uh, IONS meetings there, which is amazing. Um, So Kim had an NDE in 1970 when she was 22 years old. And at that time, there wasn't even a name for it. So it took her years to kind of even realise what had happened. And she's really personal about her story. She shares exactly, you know, how it impacted her how it changed her life but what's really interesting as well about this conversation is she shares the stories of others so because Mm. of her work and the support groups that she hosts she comes across hundreds and hundreds of other near-death experiences so she's got loads and loads of stories and insights not only from herself but from others as well and I think it can really teach us a thing or two um about about what it's like to go through this and what it you know maybe bring some comfort as well for you know all of us who are experiencing loss I think we were both really just captivated throughout this whole conversation weren't we absolutely it's such an amazing conversation so let's just jump straight in and we hope you enjoy it guys Kim, it is so great to have you join us today. We have both watched you on Surviving Death on Netflix and we've read your captivating book, After the Light. We're massive fangirls of you. Well, thank you. Um, To be honest, I am truly honoured. 
this subject means a lot to me. And any chance I have to um, share what I know, bring comfort, bring some guidance, bring some hope to others, I'm in. I'm a licensed clinical social worker in the United States. And um, so that just makes me one big helper. And you're such a wealth of knowledge and you've done some absolutely incredible work in the field of NDEs, but also as a critical care social worker. So there's so much that we want to delve into with you. But to start, we would love to hear a little bit about 22-year-old Kimberly and what happened that May day in Kansas in 1970. Well, okay. Um, I'm going to tell my dad's perspective first because that is the groundwork because actually I was on the ground. Um, but I was at the Department of Motor Vehicles in Shawnee Mission, Kansas, in the United States. Um, and I was leaving with my father, leaving the building when I fell into and through his arms, according to him. He said a uniformed nurse was passing by. She ran over, determined uh, I didn't have a pulse. I didn't seem to be breathing. Uh, in 1970, in that part of the country, just on the verge in the States of having a one system emergency response program in place, but it wasn't in place yet. So a call was made to the local volunteer firefighters and a call was made to the closest hospital, which is about a 20 minute ambulance right away after they got the call, unknown when they got the call. Fire department though arrived first, they had a portable ventilator. Um, they put it on and it was a seal because you don't want any leaking air if you're going to save someone's life. Um, but this was, according to my dad, a brand new portable ventilator. He watched them remove the plastic and hold it up, try to figure it out. They were not expecting a need for it at that moment, clearly. But they were doing such sincere work. My father was really not ever angry about what I'm about to tell you. But um, they applied the mask over my nose and mouth and turned it on, but this portable ventilator had two features, one to ventilate, which is what you want, but the other to vacuum, because sometimes there's a blockage in people's throats. So we tell children, don't run with candy. If it happens in a restaurant, it's called a cafe coronary. I mean, there's words for this. So to relieve the airway of any blockage, this feature of vacuum is what's used. And then a flick is switched and air goes in under tremendous pressure. It was on vacuum mode. And my long time joke is that they sucked the life out of me. But that is what happened. But it, it <laughs> to be what happened. So they immediately knew what was wrong, flicked the switch. But our lungs are sticky. And when they come in contact with each other, they'll, they'll clean the tissues will cling to itself, to, to either sides of our lungs. So to open, it needs a steady, usually intensive care unit situation, to slowly open those very important parts of our body. Well, this was a violent, violent push of air when they discovered that it was on vacuum mode. 
apparently the ends of my fingers were black and around my mouth. And um, there was no place for the air to go. So it expanded and hit my skin. And then I basically inflated like a flesh balloon. It's called epithelial emphysema and pretty fatal if not tended to carefully. So then uh, they gave up, turned to my firefighters, turned to my dad and said, I'm sorry, we're not getting a thing. At some point, the ambulance had arrived. Things went bad in the ER. That's what I don't remember. What I do remember is um, hearing a woman's voice to my left saying, I'm not getting a pulse. I'm not getting a pulse. And I turned to her and with the same sense of conversation, like I'm talking to the two of you now, I said, of course, you're getting a pulse. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking. I thought it was really clear. And I did feel like I was talking, but I wasn't. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be ignored, I'm out of here. I mean, I was a brat, you know. So was this an, a near-death snit? I don't know, but I was gone. I found myself next in uh, someplace. I knew I wasn't alone. I was surrounded by gray, foggy material. Uh, I felt like calm. I had expectations of something. Uh, upon reflection, it was like being at the airport and you're at the gate you got a ticket, you're just waiting for the announcement that we're going to board. It was like that. Um, then under me, and this is, the problem with the near-death experiences is timelessness instead of linear time and ineffability, meaning there are no words. So I'm telling you this about this event in a linear fashion, but it, it doesn't wasn't like that and um and i have no words for what happened next but except to say a huge bright light just exploded underneath me and i said in my mind if nothing else homey home which is what i later learned from my parents i um <clears throat> apparently i would say homey home when i was learning language and we we're headed back into our neighborhood and I was recognizing signs. And so I'd go, homie home, homie home. And for a parent, it was one of those bougie, bougie boo moments, but I don't remember saying that, but they do. And that's what I said in the presence of this tremendous light. It was brighter than a million suns. I've never seen a million suns, but again, I've been to Australia and that's pretty close. <laughs> And, uh, and I mean that in the most positive way. I love Australia, but that's yet another subject. So um, I could see this light spread out in all directions, but also layer endlessly on itself. And I somehow knew that I was beholding linear time, but also dimensions. Mm. And I, I, No words, <laughs> no words. I can cry at this point because this light was all love. And it was like directed at me. And again, upon reflection, I would say God, and I'm gonna use that word from now on, but I don't mean it. it. That's just three letters in the English language that doesn't even remotely cover it. My creator, I mean, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not in no the religious, words. not in the religious sense, is it? It's just 
trying to describe something yeah, bigger big, than yeah bigger than are. big yeah I I you know and I'm sorry I just I've never found the words I want anyway this light I could communicate with so then I was sent back and I missed my body by about six feet here I'd had the most sacred experience I think humanly possible and all I could think of was a joke and that was like I can't even park myself <laughs> but I was looking at myself and go and I didn't even consider that I didn't have eyeballs mm. and again upon survival and reflection how could I see anything my eyeballs were in a body what was I doing anywhere seeing anything a light or fog or people's legs or that which is not Kim because the Kim that was Kim was me and I was not in that body everything I identified with my memories my sense of self my dad the people I didn't meet before what am I doing on the ground all of that was amazing I mean I my I don't know how it happens, but my dad was there to validate uh, most of the things I'm sharing with you. That was something that you mentioned in, in your book that you kind of, your body, you were looking at your lifeless body and it was just a shell. And that's something that we've heard, but they say that like the very essence of who they are was no longer in their body. No. And I'm, I'm called the death and dying social worker. I have had a career around people at the end of their lives. Uh, both slowly and, and that's in a cancer setting, and quickly in an intensive care and coronary care unit setting. By the way, where I work is called Harborview Medical Center. It then, as now, serves a landmass of one-fourth of the United States. Very busy place. But that's in the future. Right now, I'm dead in Kansas. Then uh, I was not even concerned about anything i didn't even have a sense i was dead to be honest it was just i was just existing but then i saw a man bend over the body it wasn't even i didn't identify with it even but he anyway, put his mouth against mine and i moved then through everybody and through him and back into my body and as i went through him i knew everything about the guy including how nervous he was that he had stepped in and he wasn't getting the results he was hoping for so um then i was back and i was miserable it was cold uh back to my hospital records <clears throat> i was admitted with a body temperature of 86 which is a great day at manly beach but not so good for a human body our body temperatures you know 98.8 around in there um i i was miserable it was cold dark i i confusing awful 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 so i begged i didn't even say god i, I there, again no words but i begged for homey home i guess but god kindly showed up and opened like this portal thing to my right and i was informed that that was my heaven at least at that time and it was beautiful nothing flashy um no people but just meadows or fields of long grass and blue sky and off in the distance some white fancy material or whatever um, but the intensity of the colors were not of this earth the grass was not green 
it was green and the sky wasn't blue, it was blue. And I also, I was aware of every blade of grass, like they had its own life, you know. I, it was amazing and I was happy and I was on my way, but I was told if I went all the way through that window, there would be no going back. So I was like, okay, thanks. <laughs> Off I went. Before I obviously got through the window though, there was a flash of light and I was shown if I chose to live, where I would be living. And it was uh, where mountains met water. There was no signage, thanks God. But it wasn't Kansas. Kansas is the flattest part of North America. Uh, so I didn't care. I'm off to homey home. Then another flash, and it was like a gallery, a portrait gallery of people with captions underneath, not by name, but by description. And it was common stuff. Uh, again, no drama other than the whole experience was pretty dramatic, but it was just people I would be seriously interacting with if I chose to live. Well, they were strangers. What did I care? So I'm off. And then there was a third flash and I, it distracted me and I saw myself being of service. And I said, cool. And apparently that was considered an agreement to return. What I found really interesting, um, Kim, when watching you on the Netflix Surviving Death documentary is the work that you were doing through IANS, which we'll get onto a little bit later, um, but where you, you know, you work with so many other NDE experiencers and, and so many of them say, you know, I, I didn't want to come back. Like I wanted to go. And, and that's a big thing, isn't it? For a lot of people who experience NDEs is that sense of, um, actually, I, I don't want to be back in, in this body and, and, and in this earth, which in a way, I think, gives people who are grieving a little bit of comfort to know that that can be the experience. Yes. And uh, ever more so if leading up to it, there's been a lot of suffering. You know, why go back if the body is wrecked or if mm. the body is so old and doesn't function well or if the body is so riddled with disease that it is unbearable suffering or burnt. I mean, there's all kinds of physical reasons to go, no, thank you. But even like me, young and in otherwise perfect health, um, I liked heaven. Mm. You know, I'm, mm. but again, I like life too. I love being alive, by the way. And you mentioned, um, you know, uh, suicide. This is offline, but um, even people who want to die and have a near-death experience can choose to come back and with a message. Uh, people who have left suffering bodies and have been brought back complain. In fact, they're angry. I've dealt with angry people. Like, what were you thinking? You know, I was happy. Um, so this isn't religious but it's going to be okay for everybody. Mm. I promise there will be reunions. When we die, um, oh, please don't be afraid. No matter what brings you there, just don't. But if you want to, here comes some advice, but if you want to avoid grief altogether, there's a way to do it. <laughs> and that is 
don't love anybody or anything. Mm. Just don't love, put on the brakes. You will never grieve. That's how you avoid grief. Unfortunately, you miss a lot of other things <laughs> that uh, make the grief worthwhile. Uh, and the more we love, the harder it is. It's so true. You know, after all, the purpose of life is to love, isn't it? And that's something that yes. you share in your book. I just want to say what you've just shared about the suicide element of things that helps me personally so much. I always worried about whether she was in pain and whether, you know, it, it hurt her. And I, 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 it was something that was covered off in episode one of surviving death. They were talking about the exact way that my mum died and said it was actually very peaceful. And lots of people had reported that people who had died that way and come back to life. Like it, it was a nice experience and so much weight lifted off me hearing that because that's something that I used to delve into quite a lot and, 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 yeah, picture and just obsess about almost just trying to put myself in that place. The second near-death experiencer I ever interviewed was a 16-year-old who wound up on the intensive care unit. Um, She had overdosed, you know, over a boy, but she did survive. Um, What happened to her? I I asked and she said, oh, I was with my oompa. It's like, huh? Oompa was her name for grandpa when she was little and he died before she could pronounce grandpa. And she found herself with Oompa. He was sitting like in a rocking chair and holding her and comforting her and saying, you know, there, 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 uh, and go back and make this better. (laughs) It was like, this is not your time. Mm. It's just not your time. And you're going to be doing something good with this. And then released her. That wasn't a hellish damned because you killed yourself experience. And parenthetically, um, she did do quite well. She wound up, uh, her mental health needs needed to be met first. But I kept following her through all kinds of mental health situations. Um, and she wound up with me going around to area high schools talking to people about kids, about not hurting themselves, which was a really wonderful thing for her to do because I could be up there and who cares? But this was another teenager, another high schooler who was being very honest. But again, she would also communicate that there was no hellfire and brimstone waiting for her, no damning God waiting for her. She was loved. And, but was sent back. I have so many stories like that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we'll have to get you on for like a, a marathon, marathon podcast sesh. Cause it's so fascinating. And yeah, like Im said, just to know that no matter how your near death experience happens or how, you know, you come to that place, especially with suicide to know that it's not an unpleasant experience. Like, just so much comfort for so many people. And I just want to jump back a little bit. I'm really keen to hear more about kind of how you got to what you're doing now. But first, in 1970, you mentioned that nobody had really heard of an NDE. There probably wasn't even the name for it, was there? Um, so you, no, no. Yeah. 
like it yeah no, you couldn't put it into words in a sense and so you kind of filed that experience to the back of your mind so when did you first tell somebody what happened to you and, and how did they react how did I tell them to begin with all I did was cry it was my grandpa my own grandfather speaking of a nice big laugh he was the kind of person that you know I could crawl into the lap of just like the gal I told you about um, he was that kind of a grandpa and I was on his lap and just crying and crying and crying and um, trying to tell him something it was a big effort I failed but he knew something big had happened and so did my family because I decided to buy a car and leave on that way in Salt Lake City I stayed with my same grandpa's sister and by now I had better words um, and I was describing it to her and she said why honey you've had yourself a spiritual experience and that was a light bulb going off first time I'd heard of it my memory was like a jigsaw puzzle that had been thrown up into the air, um, but the pieces hadn't landed yet. And that took a few years, to tell you the truth, before I figured out I wasn't the only person who had had this kind of experience close to death. And by now I'm at Harborview as an employee, <clears throat> the social worker, and meeting people who had these experiences, and I was interviewing them, and off we went. I was meant to be there. I was meant to be in Seattle here. Um, everything in my life has already proven itself to have been useful again for why I was sent back to serve. Okay, let's take a second to talk about our sponsor for today, Grief, a Guided Journal by Joe Betts. I think sometimes when it comes to journaling, I don't know about you, Ian, but for me, it can be hard to know where to even start Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, what, what's great about this particular journal is that it comes with writing guides. So it prompts you and gives you like a safe space for self-exploration on the big griefy topics like who you were before you came to grief, loneliness, regret, and my absolute fave, so you'll know about this, but anger. So for me, like in the beginning, I was so angry and I felt like I just needed to release all of that safely and journaling provided me that and you know Joe Betts's journal is just amazing because it prompts you on what to say when sometimes you don't know where to begin because there's so much going on for you. Absolutely and I think there are such proven benefits to writing it all out and having a good old rage scribble like you say. Rage scribble I love it <laughs> and, you know it just it just provides you that safe space like there's no judgment like you don't have to watch what you say watch what you write you just let it all out and that's exactly what I needed to work through my grief it was so so helpful guys if this sounds like the extra support you need right now or maybe if you know someone who might like it as a gift then good morning listeners can get 10% discount on grief a guided journal with the code good morning 10 and you can find the link to buy it in the show notes okay back to the show one thing that I found really interesting and I'd love to pick your brains about is in surviving death you um you're talking to lots of other near-death experiences and there's one lady in particular who is really emotional because she didn't want to come back after her experience but also is finding it hard explaining what happened to her with her 
marriage as well. And I can imagine that when you've had an NDE, it can really impact your relationships and your day-to-day life because you obviously are seeing and operating through a bit of a different lens. How do people cope when they're trying to explain what happened to them? And, you know, it's hard to articulate and people might dismiss them. They might not understand, like from your experience doing all the work you do, how do people cope? Like, are there any sort of commonalities there? Um, Well, in a marriage, it's called divorce. In the we study that was done on the subject of marriage status and near-death experiences, and that was in the United States, 50% of people divorced after a near-death experience. The change was that great. I've, again, boy, I could go off, but one of my stories uh, had to do with um, an attorney uh, who lived in a a posh part of Seattle and had a near-death experience and bedside, not not even up and at him, he announced to his family that he was quitting his practice and devoting himself to serving the poor that needed uh, pro bono representation in the legal system. He was so happy. His family were not so happy. They were used to, you know, his wife had, you know, white wine luncheons at the club and the kids had nice private schools and tennis lessons, all that. They didn't want to let that go. And that was a crisis. I talked him into waiting a year before making any more changes. And that settled out nicely, actually, because he reduced his practice. His family just had to live with less money. And he spent a large part of his time happily serving the poor. He was fulfilled. But that marriage stayed intact. But another fellow who also was admitted to Harborview, um, I, he, he was admitted purple, which meant, why are we even, he's dead. I mean, what's going on? He was a direct admit to the coronary care unit. So I got out again, my Kimberly Clark Kleenex, and was waiting at the elevator for the grieving family. And the doors opened, and instead of falling into my arms and crying and I'm comforting him, they were having a party. It was like happy time because this man, Mr. Timmer, was what we call in the West here in the United States a some bitch. He was just a some bitch. <laughs> he was a bad guy. He abused his kids physically and emotionally, ditto the wife, drank heavily was so mean that if children deigned to walk by his property when he was out front, he would take his finger into a partially drunk can of beer and swirl it around and throw it at him. Nothing about this man was pleasant, but he had a near-death experience. Uh, Common in my experience is that any attachments to drugs and alcohol seem to be gone. And that's an area of study that hasn't happened. He became the nicest guy. He did retire, spent his years carving wooden toys for children, and was like the Santa Claus of that part of Seattle. Well-loved. His children, who were young adults, had the dad that they always wanted, and his wife divorced him because the man she married was a drunk abuser. Wow. And this nice guy was not him. He was literally reborn by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. People come back different. There's also another uh, program we could have together just about the after effects, to be honest. But Mm. anyway, um, but telling people when I started the group, which was 40 years ago this month, and it's 
full of acronyms, but Seattle, I-A-N-D-S, ions.org, which is an affiliate of the International Association for Near-Death Studies at ions.org. I invite people to uh, visit me, visit the website but of Mother Ions, as we call it. Anyway, 40 years ago, there were people staggering in. They had been institutionalized. They had been uh, very mistreated and disbelieved by spouses, uh, pastors, doctors. People then were just flailing around like um, no support, thinking they were crazy. And I too had at one time thought that I was crazy. I then became a social worker. I was in graduate school. And I thought, hmm, I'm nuts <laughs> because I was seeing things that other people couldn't see. And I thought, I'm nuts, a very highly functioning schizophrenic until mm -hmm. I started meeting others who had my experiences as well. But over the course of the decades, things have changed a lot. There's so much information. Uh, and now with the internet out there that uh, validates the experience that uh, I haven't heard of anyone being institutionalized. And I can't remember how long ago. And if one goes to a doctor now and says, I had a near-death experience, if that doctor doesn't know what you're talking about, call me, write to me. I've got information for any physicians that would discount their patients on the subject. And that's so incredible about the work that you do, because in your book, you do talk about how you know, when you're supporting others, when they've experienced an NDE, it's so important to provide validation of what they've been through because to have it dismissed is just really, so really painful. difficult for them. Yeah. And sets yeah, up, like yeah. a, you said, a dissonance that takes years to resolve. Yeah. It's very, very painful. And you sort of held on to your experience for so long. And it wasn't until there's a story in your book where you meet Maria at Harborview and you just have this moment where you're like, hold on a minute, I've, I've been through what you, you're going through. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, thank you for the opportunity because this is like urban legend status at this point. And there are a lot of versions of this story, but this is the horse and this is the mouth. This is the person that actually had the experience. For the record, yes, I'd love to tell you. So back to Harborview Medical Center, young social worker, uh, ambitious. It's an academic University of Washington setting. I wanted to climb the academic ladder and did, but at that time, I didn't even know where the ladder was. And I, I needed a, a research to, to advance academically anywhere in the world. You need to do peer-reviewed research, published in a journal with a review committee. I mean, it's, the standards are high. And uh, I just couldn't find anything I was interested in until Maria and the shoe on the ledge. And this is the story. A woman, Hispanic, was admitted to Harborview Medical Center at night, unconscious from heart attack. It, it, it was beyond that, but for the sake of this broadcast, a heart attack. And uh, she'd never been to Seattle, and she was what's called a direct admit to the coronary care unit, which means they went through the emergency room but kept on going because she had ongoing CPR, back to what we talked about. The next day, uh, I met her because oh, she needed money. We had to find her family, uh, you know, all kinds of social worky things to do. And uh, off I went. 
later in the day, I got paged back to the coronary care unit um, because, and I'm skipping ahead, I left out something important. About three days had gone by and I really didn't need to interact with Maria much anymore. She's Spanish was her primary language. There was an interpreter who stepped in and I, I really, she's a nice woman. I, I had done everything I needed to meet her needs. But one morning, about three days after she was admitted, she did go into cardiac arrest. I was on the unit at that time and observed it. It was an easy resuscitation. Um, she was unconscious afterwards, but breathing on her own. I went about my day, but then I was called back um, because her nurse said, Maria is awake, she's agitated. Couldn't find the translator, so no one knew what was agitating her. And social worker, come up and fix it. <laughs> so, like, okay. My Spanish, I took three years of Spanish in high school and I didn't do well. Um, I wish I had at this moment because I couldn't find the translator either. Maria was agitated. So we just took a breath. So what I'm going to tell you is my version of that interview, which is more like travel language. You know, like, and if you've traveled, it is possible to communicate through, you know, and then up there, you know, bathroom, I mean, whatever it takes. So she was doing that. And here's the summation in very short shrift of what she told me. First, she said, she pointed to a corner of the ceiling of a room and said that's where she was, and she was looking down on the room and was able to tell me who was in the room, what the equipment was doing. Um, and I was kind of eyeball rolling at that time because I was the best and worst person for her to speak with. The best because well, I've had a similar experience, but the worst is that I'd already decided I was that highly functioning schizophrenic. So, um, I didn't want to hear anything about it, but there was a piece of equipment that caught my attention that she described, and that was back in the day. This is before Wi-Fi stuff. Uh, there were big machines filled with paper, really wide mouths, and they would spew cardiac information that when the patient was you know, in stable sinus cardiac rhythm or dead, the doctors would you know, fold up all these papers and study them uh, in a, a room on the floor. I know no one told her about that. That equipment's only brought in under ongoing resuscitation efforts. But I, again, and then she said, just like that, she had no sense of traveling. Uh, she was distracted by something out of her window and she described perfectly the emergency room entrance, the curvature of the driveway, the uh, one-way traffic, the... Uh, doors automatically opening and shutting. And I thought, yeah, big deal. Her room is directly above that door. So probably somebody, you know, she doesn't remember. I knew she wasn't lying, but somebody probably pushed her bed over by the window from, you know, to clean some housekeeper or something, which was a dumb thing to conclude because and no housekeeper is going to unplug a critically ill patient and get hold your breath there. Excuse me, I just, stubborn stain. Got to work this out. I mean, just, but that's where my mind was going. And then she said she was distracted. She found herself outside in another part of the hospital, but eyeballed a shoelace with a dark blue large tennis shoe that had a little scuff on the outside toe and a white lace that went under the heel. That's a lot of details for someone who 
isn't speaking good English, talking to someone who isn't listening with good Spanish speaking skills. But it was that kind of detail. And the reason she was agitated, it wasn't because she was in distress. She was excited. She wanted someone to go out and find the shoe. But she didn't know exactly where it was. Uh, Harborview Medical Center is immense. And so um, couldn't you ask someone else to go? But no, it was down to me. I, I went outside and uh, was looking up. The sidewalk that I was on was hugging the building. And I didn't see any shoe from that close proximity, but a bird flew on a ledge. Then I didn't see the bird, so I thought, or I'm going to have to go inside. Uh, skeptics, such as just the podcast I did two days ago, say, well, why didn't you just step back? Well, the reason is because there's an ambulance driveway behind me. If you step off this sidewalk, again, trauma center. And uh, I actually was in, a, I parked in an underground garage uh, for all the years. I worked there like 10 plus years. Uh, and it was easier to shortcut across that driveway, but I called it the gauntlet. Everyone called it the gauntlet because it just too much traffic at high speed. And then the question is, well, why don't you step back further? Good question. There was a cliff, <laughs> a big long cliff onto a major freeway. So it wasn't going to do that. I went inside and the windows and the part of the hospital where I started uh, was in the center of the hospital, and they went almost to the floor. So all I had to do was walk around. I was on the third floor at that time. These were my former patients. This is where they spilled to after the ICU. It wasn't a big deal. I mainly could just look in and go, there's not a shoe there, and what am I doing looking for a shoe? And why is there a shoe on the ledge anyway? A question that remains unanswered. And, and I went my way around and... Uh, you know, I'm like 17% Irish, so I call it the luck of the Kim, you know, which means no luck. I actually had started out on the wrong side of the building, but that's fine. Made my way around. Some rooms I had to step into all the way to the glass because there were, at that time, probably still is, two-tiered metal carts that held stuff, you know, towels, basins, lotions, and all that. And if they were in front of the window, I couldn't see the ledge. I was on the west side of the building. There was one of those situations. So I had to go in and I looked down and there was a large men's dark blue tennis shoe. I couldn't see the outside uh, scruffy part, but I could see a white lace. And everything changed for me right there. It was like everything fell together. All those jigsaw pieces that I told you about just went boop and formed a picture called my life. <laughs> and I, uh, I really was so shocked, I couldn't support my own body weight. So I bonked my head, my forehead against the glass. And then out loud said, this happened to me. And I remember the momentary fogging from my breath on the glass. I remember everything so clearly from that time. So um, again, no drama, other than the fact that there was a shoe on a ledge that we couldn't account for. Uh, this story has been told so often that it's just gotten ridiculous in some cases. To clarify, the shoe was blue. It was on a ledge. It was found by a social worker, me. <laughs> One author that had a best-selling book 
had me climbing out of the window and on my hands and knees, crawling along a ledge, turning a corner, and then getting the shoe and then backing up and you know, <laughs> rinse and repeat. I was this actually was... just thinking, I when you're telling this story, I'm, I've heard this because it was in Leslie Kane's book, Surviving Death. I think that's where I read it. And I think I wrote we, that. I wrote, you wrote that. that. You yes. can take that to the bank. Yes. I wrote that. And I think we, that is, we yeah. Yeah, we talked because we interviewed Leslie Kane um, about a year ago and she's absolutely incredible. We we love her. She's such a wonderful human, isn't she? And um, yes. And I think she mentioned this story as well, didn't she? Im? Yes. So it's great yeah. to be talking to the source. Like, how I know. incredible. And, and here you are back to uh, uh, here's the horse in the mouth. Um but I also want to add that Maria's body was on the second floor center of this mammoth facility where I found the shoe was on the north, was on the west side of the building on the third floor, not even close to where she was. And again, I've heard every skeptical response possible. I'm sure it was, well, you know, how do you know that no one brought her around to that side of the building? Well, because of the medics report, why were they going to go on a little tour, you know, of the. Yeah, you don't do that when someone's in cardiac arrest, do you? You're not like, oh, let's go for a ride. Nice sunset, you know, let's go check it out. (laughs) Oh, look, a shoe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and then it was, well, could any employees have uh, seen the shoe and talked about it around her? And sure, but why? Um, also, I, I tend to believe that the shoe was recently placed there. I don't know why, but eventually someone would see the shoe and either kick it off the ledge or bring it in and toss it. You know, I, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, again, what's a shoe doing out on the ledge anyway? I, I just don't know. But having mentioned this, now you will start seeing single shoes in the oddest places because your awareness has just been lifted. And it's weird to be driving down a highway and go, a shoe? And again, <laughs> don't you notice that you're only wearing one shoe now? I, I don't get it. But um, I didn't crawl out on my, I mean, this is the time of miniskirts, mid-70s, when I'm going to flash <laughs> all of Seattle. I mean, just, no, no, no. I reached out and I grabbed the shoe. But I did take it down to Maria and asked her, uh, still no translator, though, I couldn't believe it. Um, Does she remember anything on the inside? No, she never saw the inside. And then I had the shoe behind my back because I'm really a mean person. (laughs) But then I pulled it out. And then my Spanish came back and it was Viva Zapata. (laughs) (laughs) And that shoe, uh, this wasn't like a flash in a pan kind of experience. Maria was in the hospital for three weeks. So it wasn't just then. And then she was an outpatient at Harborview, which I also covered. And I followed her as an outpatient for three years. I didn't go blathering on about it. The nurses did. I thought it was for me. It's like, ooh, now I'm going to ask everybody who's resuscitated what they remember about being dead. Talk about a leading question. (laughs) But for two months, no one said, oh, until the teenager I told you about who saw Oompa. 
And then there were three of us. And I thought, I'm just going to keep asking. And now, by one account, in 40 years, more than 10,000 people have come through the door of the support group called Seattle Alliance. So about one third of the people who attend our meetings have had a near-death experience. The vast majority have had similar experiences, but not close to death. Um, like during the Sydney uh, Olympics, uh, marathon runners would report under that kind of physical stress, popping out a body and they're looking down from treetop level at their perfectly healthy selves running. I can't explain that either. Again, where are the eyeballs? But um, that's a, a near-death-like experience or uh, um, a perception of uh, the presence of a deceased loved one. Um, odd things like, well, when grandpa died, he came from Switzerland and brought the family clock with him and that thing never stopped, but it stopped the moment he took his last breath. You know, that kind of stuff. So the vast majority of people who attend just don't have another place to share their weirdness. And then uh, everybody else are just curious. They're the curious public, it's a safe place. Uh, or they might be grieving. I, I begin our meetings, I can't account for any other group leader, but I, I welcome everyone, introduce myself, uh, define a near-death experience, which for me is pretty simple, you know, like a memory during a, a you're close to death and it doesn't for me have to be in the hospital people know if they've had a near-death experience or not and then i asked well how many people have, you know had a similar experience with forest of hands and then i always ask and who here is grieving and there's a substantial number of hands and i tell them you are especially welcome here this is a place of comfort and hope and love something that um we have heard is that you know many ND experiencers feel a grief when they have to come back because you know some sometimes they're reunited with loved ones and then they have to leave and come back earthside and that can be quite distressing. Is is that something that you've come across a lot in the work that you do? Yes, I have. The feeling that this is where I want to be, these are my people, this is this is my happiness, this is my heaven, is very common. But I have a thought, getting weirder as we go here, but I wonder if we aren't, and I, I'm going to step out on a limb further and go, I'm sure of it, but right now I'll just wonder, are we surrounded by loved ones anyway? Just because we're not having a near-death experience and can't perceive them doesn't necessarily mean they're not here. So my thought is, could it be that we are their heaven because of the love attraction? And so your moms might be right with you and, and others, your ancestors, who knows? Uh, one of my after effects is seeing things that other people don't see. And uh, that's why I know that uh, on the other side, there are still people and things that were never human that come to comfort us. And um, so even though someone's very sad because they're back, uh, particularly if they're back in a body that is broken, mm -hmm. maybe because of burns or whatever, you know, where there's actual some suffering involved. Yes, 
On the other hand, there are parents who can't wait to get back. So being a mom seems to have a different effect. So uh, for for uh, moms in particular, and I'm trying to think of a dad, I'm sure I've got stories, but um, it's getting back to my kids. One woman uh, said she felt like she had to climb a big cliff that soil wasn't stable, and, but she was going to get to the top of that cliff because her twins were waiting for her and mm-hmm. she had given birth to twins. This is a childbirth thing. She had just carried twins. She had just delivered twins. She did not want to leave them. As we kind of near the end of the interview, would absolutely love to know, and this might be the kind of golden question here, but how did, if you could pick one way, and I know there's probably quite a few, but one main way that your NDE experience changed you, what would it be, would you say? I, my family, my birth family and siblings would say that um, I'm definitely more emotionally secure. Um, I am, I was raised in financial comfort. And so I measured success by material belongings and stuff, because that's how my parents measured it, their parents and on and on. I didn't care about that anymore. Um, I uh, am weepy around people in need. I'm, I'm very, very sensitive as a result, very sensitive and have to be careful. Uh, right now, in case you've been under a rock on the other side of the globe, but we've got this thing going on in the United States right now, um, with very distressing uh, committee reports and all that. And I like, I really want to watch, but I can feel people and I just can't. And I'm not a medium. By the way, I want to establish that. I'm actually an extra large right now, <laughs> but I'm not a medium oh. in, this, in the spiritual sense. I can't help it. <laughs> You're just getting a big snoot of my personality, which is a compliment to you. I'm feeling a thousand percent unprofessional right now. We love your getting, humor. Yeah. Yeah, we love your humor. You're getting my authenticity, not my serious, you know, in front of the camera <laughs> self. Um, so I was seeing things and uh, one of them, the story I want to share, which is really like beating me up right now. I feel like I'm supposed to tell this. Intensive care unit, Harborview Medical Center, same job. A woman died. She, um, I don't remember if she was widowed or divorced horribly or something, but her 16-year-old son and only kin was out in the waiting room and this woman died. And the doctor and I had to go out and tell this boy, completely alone at that time in the waiting room that his mother was dead. Mm, Sad part of my job, but a good part. I'm good at it, but nonetheless. So um, he didn't want to see his mother's body, but he wanted to talk to her. And I said, oh, that's easily arranged. Uh, Unlike the coronary care unit where Maria was, where there's big room and doors in the intensive care unit, it was like, you know, sort of a U-shaped, Uh, with curtains around the bed so nurses could see everybody all the time. And um, so I said, okay, went back to the nursing staff and I said, clean the body in case he does want to see her. She had tubes down her throat. It wasn't like she was dirty or anything or even bloody. It wasn't her problem. Anyway, they did that. 
And then we put the curtain around her and I went out and got this boy and said, okay, I'm going to walk you up to your mom's head. It's just a curtain, as you know, and this is your chance to tell her anything you want her to know. This is it. I firmly believe that she can hear every word as I stepped away. Well, I knew she could hear every word because she was standing there with her arm around her son. And I saw it with my eyes. It was like she was there, so freshly dead, if you will. She was still in very human shape. And it was amazing. It was amazing. The mom herself was comforting him as he was telling her how much he loved her. Welling up. I got chills. <laughs> yeah. It was the gift yeah. of all gifts. And that I could observe that. I didn't tell him the details of how I knew, but my sincerity was apparent. And, um, and he was comforted. And uh, I believe that is more common than not. The biggest change for any near-death experiencer, including myself, is the awareness of the utter importance of loving and loving and loving well. What a beautiful thought to end this conversation on. And we are so grateful that we got to speak to you. It's been nothing short of an absolute treat. And you're just incredible. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of your knowledge and your experience and your stories. I know that many of our listeners are going to be fascinated by this chat and will probably want to read your book for themselves. We'll link it in our show notes so they can, they okay. can find and it. And then if you want to directly contact me, good luck because <laughs> Netflix has set me way back in terms of being able to respond, but I'm still saying, still reach out to me. And you can reach me through Seattle IONS. So that would be S-E-A-T-T-L-E-I-A-N-D-S at yahoo.com. Kimberly, I, I actually have no words at the end of this one. It's mm -hmm. just been really, really special. And Sal and it I really think we've has. just been so engaged to every single word that you've shared with us and everything, every single story and your entire experience. You are such a gift to this world. So thank you for everything that you do. And thank you for taking the time to speak to us as well. Thank you. Oh, it, it's been my pleasure. You two are beautiful. I loved every minute of that conversation. I am actually shooketh by that shoe story. Oh my God. All the stories like Kim is amazing. <laughs> and I love it when we have these interviews with people who are just so lovely, like so kind that I feel like we're going to be mates for life. <laughs> I hope she realizes Definitely. we're coming over to Seattle, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> um, her story is just so interesting. And guys, we hope that it brought you as much comfort as it did for us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review or share it around with anyone who you think might benefit from listening. All of these things really help the podcast, podcast get seen by other people. And don't forget, we've got our grief and loss affirmation cards, which are available via our website they're an amazing present for someone who's grieving or for yourself because we know we need you know a little bit of extra support when we're grieving and yeah we will be back very soon with some more amazing conversations bye for now guys bye